Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, March 19th, 2021. On today's episode, we're going to have a spoiler-filled discussion about the Falcon and Winter Soldier Episode 1, New World Order. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jake Paul. Hello, hello. And Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Okay, so we don't have any emails this week, but feel free after listening to this episode. If you have questions, comments, concerns, did you see any Easter eggs that we might have missed? Any uh, speculation that you might have? Send it to me at peter at flashfilm.com. I can't promise you that we'll read it in an upcoming episode um, because, you know, by next week's episode, next week's episode will air and that might invalidate some stuff. But, uh, you know, we will read each and every one of your emails. I promise you at least that and we will feature some. Of the email so so please if you have any uh you know theories easter egg speculation or whatnot send it in to us okay let's get into our brief reactions uh i i know jacob and i have both given our kind of like spoiler fill or spoiler free reactions on the water cooler and we'll reiterate some of those points in a second but ben is the only one i have not heard from because i think you watched it this morning uh, yeah, I was, I actually got a screener, so I watched it yesterday afternoon. Oh, okay. So what did you think? Um, better than I thought it was going to be based on the trailers. I think the trailers, I think a lot of people expected it to just be sort of like an empty kind of show, you know, a little bit of like flashbang action and that's kind of it. And I was surprised to see that, um, you know, while we do get, uh, certainly more of that than we got in the early episodes of WandaVision, there actually does seem to be like some real meat on this bone. So I, I was pleasantly surprised to see that. Well, very cool. Um, I, I think I said on this week's water cooler that I was most surprised that the action was as big and uh, just in, in scale. And it felt like a Marvel Cinematic Movie or Marvel Cinematic Universe action sequence in like just how ambitious it is. And I, I, I'm just like happy that we're getting to connect with these characters on a more human level. And, uh, you know, uh, deal with all the stuff that like we usually kind of fast forward through in the movies. You're usually fast forwarding to the next action scene and we don't really get to deal with like, you know, how these people as humans are 
dealing with all these things you know there's all this interesting stuff going on in this world and not just the world but to them personally so uh, i'm excited about all that jacob what was your brief reaction to this first episode yeah i talked about this on the water cooler first time i could i think it's a really strong start i think the episode suffers a little bit from being uh part of the big long movie approach which we can talk about you know in the episode ahead where it feels less of an individual episode and more of half of a first act and some people like tv like this i think it it's very much a Netflix approach. It's not one I always like. So I feel like it's really hard to talk about. It was even hard for me to write my review that's on the site right now. Uh, a spoiler-free, you know, Thursday review, not the spoiler-filled Friday review. Because it's not clear what the show is going. We, Sam and Bucky, the Falcon and Soldier, don't, don't even share a scene in this first episode. There's, it's still setting the stage. But uh, I found myself really drawn to the character stuff. I found myself really drawn to the story of Sam and his family and how being an Avenger does not change the fact that he's still a black man in America. And the show directly tackles that. I like how uh, Sebastian Stan is allowed to do what he does best, which is brood. <laughs> he's one of the best brooders in the business. And there's shots of Bucky brooding in his apartment and brooding in alleys and brooding in bars and brooding with people. Uh, I am really excited to get to know Bucky and Sam. And the, the show comes armed with us already having an affection for them. So we're, ready to, so we're primed to like them. So even though the action is impressive, I am more impressed by how this is a character-driven episode about two characters who feel lost in modern America. Yeah. Oh, you know, another thing I wanted to mention that I didn't mention before is I'm also kind of excited that this seems like it's going to be hour-long episodes. Not that they're going to be 60 minutes long, but the the running time for this episode, what was it, like nearly 50 minutes long? Yeah, 47, I believe, is what it is. Yeah, and, you know, coming off off of WandaVision and even both seasons of the mandalorian like they've kind of you know hugged the 30 minute uh time limit they some of them have gone a little bit longer but i i'm happy that especially with this show because we're only getting six episodes as with one division we got what nine i think yeah nine it was nine yeah so uh, i'm happy that we're getting a little bit of longer episodes so or hopefully we're hopefully getting longer episodes we we don't know that this could just be you know a longer extended first episode. Um, ben, do you have anything else to say before we get into the breakdown? Uh, no, I think we'll cover it all along the way. Yeah. Uh, this episode is titled New World Order. Uh, do you guys have any any thoughts on that title? No, it's, a, it's exactly what the yeah. title you expect from uh, a world that literally is rebuilding itself after the events of Endgame. And as we see, if we see as we're told and we, as we see, the world has fundamentally shifted in, in how it's in its makeup and how people view the world and view borders and view who's in charge and who should be calling the shots. So it's it feels like the, the right title with no real yeah. secrets attached to it. It's also well, an I, interesting meta title, considering that this was supposed to be the first show back. So this, you know, <laughs> this is the new world order for Marvel properties. Like, you know, this was supposed to be the kickoff of the Disney plus MCU era. Um, and they're not going to change the title because the show had to, had to <laughs> shift a little bit in the schedule, but it would have been interesting as, as literally the first thing back after um, what was it? Spider-Man far from home. Yeah. And I like that. It's not just new world order for like the, the world, the larger world and what's going on with the, the you know, everybody trying to figure things out, but it's also a new world world order for our two main characters and like them having to figure out their place in this, this mm-hmm. post flip world. Um, okay. Let's start uh, in end game. Steve passed the torch to Falcon, giving him the shield. 
and the show seems to be Falcon grappling with the responsibility of filling Steve's shoes. And it opens with the scene of him. It, it, the opening scene actually, to me, seems like it's setting a stage for this entire, like, one season series with him, you know, replaying those events in his head of Steve passing the torch and all, all, all the while he's putting the, the shield and he's preparing to give it away to the Smithsonian. Um, do you guys have any thoughts on this, this opening sequence? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I spoke to showrunner Malcolm Spellman and we talked at length about Sam's role in this, in this show and in this world and the idea that Captain America as a symbol, you know, in the Marvel universe is one of, you know, tremendous hope is like, and in tremendous courage. And it's something, something you step into easily. You don't take that mantle easily, even if you're another superhero. Uh, but for Sam, who is, you know, not this paragon of Aryan virtue <laughs> that, that Chris Evans was blonde haired, blue eyed white guy. I mean, how can you possibly, you know, in good conscience wield the stars and stripes knowing that, a symbol that means one thing to some people means something the exact opposite to other people. And and even though it's only on the edges of this episode, Sam never comes out and says it. It is so heavily implied that, you know, why would a black man want to wear the stars and stripes? And that is a really compelling uh, idea, especially in the post-Black Panther world where Marvel has shown itself willing to talk about this stuff pretty bluntly. And I imagine we'll hear more about this more directly, you know, spoken out loud in the future. But it's very clear that this is not about this is not just Sam Wilson being, oh man, I'm no Captain America. It's him saying, uh, saying, what is Captain America? What, is it, what does this actually mean? And how can I represent that? And that to me is perhaps the most interesting angle of this entire episode so far. Yeah, and Jacob, you had this very good interview with the showrunner. We're going to run that at the end of this episode, so stick around till the end because you're, you're not going to want to miss that. But he speaks uh, a lot to, to those points. But I, I just think it's interesting that they they opened with this scene because right from here we get this. Is it a flashback to this mission sequence, this action scene? I'm not quite sure if it's a flashback or he's because it seems like he's like getting ready to go to the Smithsonian. He's like uh, putting his suit on and he's getting the shield ready to. But then then we cut to the scene where he's on a mission to stop this terrorist group called uh, the LAF who. uh do you guys know, is this a flashback? I watched it twice and I couldn't tell. Yeah, I I don't know. I, I think maybe they just wanted to um, sort of subvert expectations a little bit and have a sort of quiet opening and, and um, you know, sort of touch on, it, even though I think it's silent, I don't think Sam actually says anything in that very opening where yeah. he's just like ironing his shirt and putting stuff on and, you know, looking at the shield and, and all of that. I think it just um, is, a, is a smart way to... Uh, just by like Sam's face, by the the facial expressions of Anthony Mackie, you can kind of see him grappling a little bit. And I think it's just a smart way to sort of lay that groundwork for like those bigger ideas that are explored in the show instead of just kicking it off with this big action scene that comes, you know, just a few minutes later. I think it's just a, a quick little, I don't know if they're, I still don't know if it's exactly a flashback and or if this, this takes place, you know, in between, um, you know, like where exactly this falls in the timeline. But uh but yeah, I just think it, it's a smart like narrative structural decision um, for the overall tone of the episode. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they filmed it so that the entire opening scene was the Smithsonian stuff and the action came after that. And they found in the editing room that they wanted to get the action out of the gate. So they spliced it this way. Oh. It, it, um, I, I feel like it's 
even if it's a, my guess would be that it's not like an intentional flashback. It's just a case of them realizing we have a powerful opening scene, then a lot of chatter with a lot of people around a museum, as opposed mm-hmm. to you know getting you into the action. I, it really feels like a, a editing post production choice. And actually, it's a, a question we should ask the filmmakers: Should we interview them? Yeah. Again? I was actually going to suggest the opposite, Jacob, that that yes, it was a decision made in post-production, but I was going to suggest that that action scene was what opened, originally opened the show, and then it goes into the Marvel Cinematic, uh, uh, you know, intro, which, uh, you know, there was no cold opening for this, and then it goes to him going, you know, that scene and him going to the Smithsonian, which is what I was going to originally suggest, but... Yeah, I'm wondering what the choice is because it does seem like a post-production choice. I w- I would guess that this is not how it was written, but I could be I could be wrong. Okay, so they're going after the uh, Falconess's mission with this terrorist group called a- LAF. Uh, I guess they're called LAF. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, but the interesting thing here is this group includes this guy named uh, Batrock, who we've seen before. We saw him in Winter Soldier. Yeah, I want to ask you, Ben, if, if Ben, since you're not as like, you're not as obsessive about Marvel as Peter and I am, did you recognize the lead terrorist as being the same bad guy from the opening scenes of Winter Soldier? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> I, I will say I am obsessive and I did not the first time I watched this. Oh, right I now. totally did. I, I'm the guy who absolutely noticed his batch. As you know in the comics, Batrock the Leaper, whose, whose power in the comics is he jumps a lot. <laughs> He's just a terrorist. <laughs> Yeah, so he was in that scene in Winter Soldier where, like, there was this friend, French pirate mercenary who was hired by Nick Fury. And this whole convoluted series of events, but whatever. To hijack the ship, to, it was a cover, as a, another cover to uncover classified info. But yeah, so now, now he's not hijacking a ship, he's hijacking a plane. Uh, yeah, so, um, so Falcon's mission is to rescue this uh this hostage before they cross the border into Libya. And the Falcon uses his red wing drone to cut through Batrock's plane. LAF goons like fly around using wingsuits. They're battling in the skies while you know cutting through canyons. He's throwing like these, you know, these wingsuit goons at the cliffs. Uh, he at one point goes into a helicopter as a fight in a helicopter. He's trying to outrun like these heat seeking missiles. And uh, it's, I don't know. It's he captures the hostage right before they hit the Libya airspace. I don't know. It, I'm not going to say that this, the choreography of this was on level of like winter soldier and what the Russos are able to do. But I was just so very impressed with how, ambitious this action sequence was and how big it is and how it doesn't look like it usually with tv and even like the best tv like when you have like action sequences like you're doing a lot of like those close-ups of kicks and stuff to because you you don't have the time you don't have the time and money to spend on what you normally do in a in a movie and i was just so impressed and how you could this could be in a marvel movie would it be like an action scene that i would be talking about in a marvel movie no but like i would totally believe this in a marvel movie and i was just so impressed by that so i wanted to hear you guys uh, ben what did you think of the action sequence um let's see there are three topics that are are little points that i wanted to make uh one it reminded me a little bit of top gun i thought it might have been like a a nice little (laughs) top gun reference in terms of like the uh there's this this 
scene in heart in uh, Top Gun where they're the characters are like flying around and, and doing like fake battle with each other and trying to there's this this concept of the hard line, which is like a a line that they're not supposed to cross. And I think it's elevation instead of uh, you, you know, like a, a border um, like it is in this show. But I just thought, you know, with all the aerial uh, action photography that maybe that was a little bit of an influence there. Um, Another thing, I was surprised at like the uh, sort of wanton deaths that occurred during the sequence. Like you mentioned, pe- you know, people being hurled into the the side of the canyon or whatever. Um, and like at one point, I think Falcon throws a uh, some sort of detonation device, a, a sticky bomb or something, onto a helicopter, and it just blows up. And there are like people in that helicopter. And after WandaVision, which um, did not feature uh, action in that kind of way, it just like gave me pause like it, i kind of um what's but you phrase? don't see anybody die you just well see the, right you, just you see don't the helicopter s- blow up right but like i mean there's there's a lot of uh implied deaths and i think you do actually see somebody like slam into the side of one of the canyons or something at one point it, anyway it, it's not like um he could have still <laughs> survived ben he could have like at that point after like you know wingsuited i don't know i'm, 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 uh, I'm being facetious there i'm not yeah no i mean and it's not like um it's not like this has never been done in Marvel movies before, but I think just coming off of uh, off of WandaVision, which is like a relatively um, clean show in terms of uh, you know character deaths, I guess um, I was just it, it sort of took me aback for for a second to like see, oh wow, we're like back in this part, this corner of the Marvel Cinematic Universe where like people are actually going to get hurt and, and like maimed and or die. Um, <laughs> not not to hijack your thread here, but. I remember vividly when Winter Soldier came out, a bunch of my old school comic book friends, while they liked the movie, were saying, we're not sure how I feel about Falcon being a guy who fires machine guns. That's not what Falcon ever did. So yeah. MCU Falcon being a guy who straight up mercs people is actually pretty new. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I, don't, it's... I don't know if that's necessarily fair, though, because, like, you know, there's a scene where he gets into the plane and he's using his his wings as a shield. So he's he's not ready to take on captain america's shield but he's still like using using defense and i i i I get it like he at one point throws that sticky bomb kind of thing i don't know i feel like it's all in service of him saving a good guy and these are these are terrorists uh yeah no no no. i I mean i I don't question the motivations and again like this kind of thing would be in or is in like every single action movie ever and i don't like blink an eye at it i think it's just the the um transition from one division to this kind of like was like oh that's notable we're back in in this this part of marvel so uh i just wanted to mention that and then the the third thing is like you know as as interesting as some of this is i there is a little part in the back of my head that's like really we're doing another trench run like this is <laughs> this is the thing here um but and like is this really what tunisia what the tunisian landscape looks like and i'm not like a geography expert but like they were um they were in a trench for a long long time there so i, I don't know exactly how this works uh but it felt a little star warsy to me and um you know, it's it's all under the same umbrella now. So uh, that trench run has been um, replicated and and a huge inspiration for tons and tons of filmmakers over the years. And I was just a little disappointed that they couldn't come up with something that was maybe a little bit more visually dynamic than you know that again, which we've seen you know approximately one billion times. But um, yeah, you know, it was good for what it was. Ben, this but uh, this is a scene where I'm wondering if you, as someone who's relatively close to my age. Grew up in the '90s with VHS tapes of all the big movies. Who did you also watch the scene in the back of your head? Just think Independence Day, Independence Day. Oh yeah, Independence Day. 
yeah, that, that's the one really that I was thinking of even more than um, than Star Wars was Independence Day because like, I mean, some of the things seem almost like shot for shot in, in certain moments. But um, but yeah, that that uh, influence looms large, certainly. Jacob, what did you think of the action sequence? It's good. I mean, uh, I, I I've always had a weird issue with like Marvel superheroes essentially being literal mercenaries. Um but it's also a case where it's very standard action movie stuff. I'm not going to dwell on it. Ben dwelled on it and already better than I could have. It's strong action. However, when the episode ended and it came time for me to write my review, uh, I was thinking a lot more about the character stuff than the action. I think it's actually, I think it's a testament to the rest of the episode that this big action scene while entertaining is not what I took away from the episode. Yeah. I fully agree with that too. Yeah. Okay. So the next scene is he meets with Lieutenant first Lieutenant Torres, and Torres is a, it might be a character that is in the comic books. Is that correct, Jacob? Honestly, I, oh, I, you don't know. I, I didn't even look this up. He, he did not ring oh. a bell. If he does, if he is a comic character, email us and let us know because I didn't even. Oh, think no, I know. I have, I have the information here. Oh, do you? Uh, I, I thought you were going to fill the backstory. Okay. Absolutely I, I, not. Absolutely I, not. I, please, <laughs> please do this. <laughs> I finally know something that Jacob doesn't know. Oh my God. No, I, I don't know it. I looked this up. But um, in the comic books, there's a character named Joaquin Torres, who we don't know that this is the same character, but he has the same last name. And he's the character that is going that that takes the vacant Falcon slot once Sam becomes Captain America. So he becomes Falcon. Interesting. Interesting. I, I, I have read the comic book run. Where Falcon becomes, becomes Captain America, but this character, if if he's in there, did not ring a bell, did not register in any way whatsoever. To be honest, well, I'm guessing it's after that that run or whatever. But I, I'm guessing, you know, when Falcon becomes Captain America, someone's going to need to become Falcon. So may, maybe this character is being set up as the next Falcon, or maybe not. Maybe it's just a Easter egg for comic book fans. And well, to be honest, I found Torres to be kind of a snooze. <laughs> so it's I was wondering what, you, what did you guys think of that character? Um, well, Jacob, you just answered, but Peter, what did you think of him? I, I don't know. Like he's, I don't know. It, he seems to do what he seems. It seems to accomplish what they need of him, but he's just there for a story purpose. I don't really feel like there's much to him, other than the fact that you know, at one point, Falcon like does this or. Keep on calling him Falcon. We should be calling him Sam because at some point he becomes a person here. And he tries to reach to like he pats his like leg to like look for his wallet, acting like he can't find his wallet, and Torres like offers to pay for him, which comes comes into play later on. So I don't know. He's a nice guy, but I don't know. I guess there really isn't much to him. Ben, what do you think? My initial read on him was like this guy is a double agent. Like he's working for the organization that he is talking to Sam about. And that may be um, me hoping that the show is more interesting in certain areas than it is willing to be. And that's totally fine if that's that, if that doesn't end up being the case, but because the character is such a sort of boy scout uh, trope of a character and does not seem super interesting on his face, I I'm hoping that there's something a little bit more devious or just uh, interesting in some way about him. But that, that was my first read. Hmm. I didn't like this whole reveal of like these flag smashers. Like he's like using his phone to take a photo of this guy thanking um, 
Sam. And then like, I don't know, what is he doing? Is he using augmented reality? Is he watching like a clip, but then he's yeah. like symbol? I didn't even understand what was going on. Yeah, it looked like augmented reality and like they have that sort of hand, uh, uh, I don't know how you would. Symbol. Yeah, th- that hand symbol basically that I guess just like marks um, maybe the site for specific events for that organization or something like that. And I don't know how something like that works. And like, is augmented reality really a thing that like a terrorist group uses? I don't, I don't know. It just, it, it um, yeah. strained a little bit of credulity to me, but uh, you know, I guess it was an, an interesting way to, um, to, to depict those events. Jacob, did you, did you like, uh, did any of that give you pause at all? No, I just assume it's the future. This stuff happens in the future. I guess that's I, true. We are supposed to be, this is set, what, several years ahead of where we are right now. So I, I will yeah. say that uh, Flag Smasher is a individual villain in the Marvel comics, a character who is uh, anti-nationality, anti-Captain you know, Captain America, but also anti-Soviet communism. In fact, I'm looking at his Wikipedia page right now, and the, 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 the frame showing him has him yelling, what, I'm not a communist. I hate the Soviet Union. Uh, I hate what the Soviet Union stands for as much as I hate what America stands for. He's always that kind of villain in the comics. Um, and I'm assuming we'll see an individual leader of this, of this Flag Smashers show up at some point. Um, well, I have an interesting bit on that. So the character in the comic books, his real name is Carl Morgenthau, I think is how you pronounce it. And we know that in this show... There's an actress named Erin Kellyman, who many of you might know as Enfy's Nest from Solo, a Star Wars story, uh, who plays a character named Carly Morgenthau. So I'm wondering if they've changed the leader of this group from this guy named Carl to this woman named Carly. And uh, there's going to be a little bit of a swerve there. I don't know. Is, is I think too much of a swerve? No, I think I, I was... I was hedging my bets to mention that I knew she was cast too. I wasn't sure which, which one to say more. We're here now. Yeah, I think absolutely it sounds like Carly Morgenthau is going to be a gender swap version of Flag Smasher or the leader of the Flag Smashers, as yeah. it seems been tweaked here. And I also will say, if you listen to my interview with Michael Spellman at the end of this episode, he emphasizes that the TV show has multiple main villains and they all have motivations the audience will, will often agree with, which I thought was very yeah. interesting. Um, especially since Flag Smasher, instead of being the sort of set, this virtue of sinister centrism from the comics seems to be more of a um not messy not maybe not well-minded but a, a group whose intentions may ring true with people living in a chaotic world you know where governments are at war with one another so i'm very curious to see if spellman's promised that maybe we'll kind of see what the flag smashers stand for I'm, I'm really hoping that it lives up to what he was teasing in our interview yeah and i do want to mention that in this podcast and every one of our spoiler podcasts we don't give you any inside info into spoilers but this is an actress who was cast in this role and that was announced you know that the name of the role was announced so uh you know anybody with google could <laughs> could connect the dots there I, I don't know i mean she could still be the daughter of of the leader of flag the flag uh flag smashers right yeah, i feel i feel like if you if you cast if you cast her she's a, she's a very talented interesting uh, actress if you cast her, you you make her the lead villain, man. You put her in a costume. You you let her punch Falcon with a soldier in the face. That's what I want yeah. from that. Um, well, uh, Torres tells Sam that the Flag Smashers are a terrorist group who thought things were better during the blip, and they want a unified world without borders. I think this is like a very interesting idea, 
And I really wish there was a way for us to explore what would happen to this world if the blip actually happened. Like, I feel like Marvel could do a TV series, like an anthology series, just exploring that in a non-superhero way. Because, I don't know, there's so many interesting things that could happen during that time or when people come back. Like, the people, that the have-nots that somehow get more power out of it now, are they thrust out of power because those the, the people that were above them come back? Do you know what I mean? Like there, there's interesting things to explore there. Uh, mm-hmm. w- w- what do you guys think of of this idea of the group of flag smashers? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, like what Jacob is just talking about, um, Spellman sort of setting up this idea that we're going to be able to relate to their worldview um, makes a lot of sense, you know, in, in exactly what you're just talking about, Peter. Like the the idea of, um, I mean, it's almost like Infinity War and, and Endgame uh, set up something that is like too big to ever fully unravel. Like th- this concept is so huge and the ramifications are so massive that um, even, you know, after all of the Marvel shows that they've announced and all the movies that they've announced, I f- still feel like there's going to be enough for like, you know, five whole shows to to uh, really to dig in on this and cover it from all of the angles that it needs to be covered to fully get an understanding of exactly how, you know, all these different aspects, social, political, like everything, um, how all of this uh, shapes up and and sort of uh, reconfigures itself in the wake of this this huge universe altering event. It's, I mean, it's so, so big. Um, there's so much room to explore. And I think, I, I wonder if they, um, if they know exactly how much room there really is here. I almost wish that we didn't get Avengers Endgame so soon after Infinity War and that we had a whole phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe to delve into this more. Oh man, that's uh that's an interesting what if scenario. I'd never even consider that because, you know, like uh it it seems um it seems too dangerous, quote unquote, <laughs> for a studio to do that, to take yeah. away a character like Tom Holland or, you know, all these beloved characters who were snapped away and just like literally take them off the board for like five years while they do a whole nother phase. <laughs> um, but God, that is like a really interesting idea. And I I think their return might have even hit harder. Um, and, and we certainly would be sympathizing more with the people who were left behind uh, and maybe even, you know, be more aligned with the worldview of something like a Flag Smasher organization uh, if that were the case. Yeah, but um, case I'm curious today. to see how that how that plays out. I do want to mention that in Sam Wilson, Captain America, the comic book uh, series, the character Flag Smasher has this whole monologue about how all the borders across the world should be open. So it does seem like they are adapting this largely from the comics, even though it isn't one main flag smasher character do you actually jacob let me ask you that do you think later we will have a flag smasher that that uh actress from solo is going to be flag smasher or do you think it's just going to be a group it's a good question i mean if this was 15 years ago i would say it would be just a group but marvel has shown its willingness to put people in costumes you know and like embrace its source material more so over the past decade and the fact that we've already seen in the trailer is that a certain Captain America Civil War character is back and wearing his classic costume or a version of it. it has me fingers crossed that even if she's not calling herself the Flag Smasher, we she will at least wear a fun Marvel costume that she because if I was yeah. if I was cast Peter's Marvel supervillain and I get a costume, I feel ripped off 
I'd be very angry about it. But that's just me. <laughs> well, to be fair, she already had like one of the coolest costumes ever in Star Wars. So true. So yeah. why ruin the streak? Why ruin the streak, Peter? Yeah, I, I do feel like uh, Enfy's Ness does not get enough love. Like that character, like that costume and the, the speeder bike thing that she rides. I don't know. It's it's very cool. Um, anyways, let's move on. Let's uh, Torres relays this theory that Steve is actually alive and he's on a, he's on a secret base on the moon. Jacob, I wanted to ask you, like, is this like a reference to the Watcher? Like, what, what is this? Is this a joke? Or this is a joke reference to what happened to the original Nick Fury, not Black Nick Fury, but old white guy Nick Fury from the comics who ended up uh, being being stationed on the moon as Earth's new Watcher. It's a whole thing. Do you think we'll actually see old man Steve Rogers in this series? I don't want to speculate too much because speculation is dangerous is how we get to Mephisto. But I think I, I think that a single scene with age Steve Rogers would be appropriate. But I'm really hoping, I kind of hope not, because I want, I want this show to be about Sam and Bucky, not about Steve. Yeah. I mean, you could also have a, there's also the possibility they could have a flashback sequence where we see a moment between Steve and Sam or Steve and Bucky and, it you know, that uh chris came back and filmed you know something like that as well so i don't know um okay so sam pretends to shuffle uh for his wallet there that was the scene i mentioned before and we, we now cut to the smithsonian and falcon gives a speech saying how we need new heroes uh, but he obviously doesn't want to take up that that large of a mantle or he, or he feels like he's not worthy uh he donates captain america's shield to the museum and we reveal that Don Cheadle is in the audience of uh, reprising his role as Rhodey. And uh, I, I honestly, I, I think we reported this, that he was in the show, but I must have missed that report because I honestly didn't expect to see him in this, this show. And uh, I wanted to ask you guys, uh, Ben, do you think Rhodey's going to have a big role in this show? No, because there's that, uh, what is the armor, armor wars or whatever the, the, oh, yeah. uh, uh, upcoming Marvel uh, Disney Plus show is that I think he's going to be more centered in. So I feel like he's just going to be sort of, yeah, more of a bureaucratic, like political figure uh, who just maybe pops in around the edges occasionally. I, I would be surprised if he like factors heavily into the action here. Okay. Uh, I, I was just wondering, because I feel like they're leading us to believe that he might be more involved in this, what happens with the shield later in this episode. Then I don't know. Maybe maybe he is Jacob. What do you think? Uh, no comment because I I cannot imagine uh, Rhodey being on board with, <laughs> okay. with with any of this. I, I want you know I think I think Rhodey's going to pop up, wish Sam good luck a few times, and vanish to the sidelines for the rest of the series. <laughs> I, I really, Peter, I really just think it's the idea of like these two black men standing together and like looking at you know this wall of imagery of you know a, a white Captain America and like um, just just the the juxtaposition of these two guys who are you know very much like in the the system so to speak the the governmental structure power structure um but they're black and what does that mean and like i just think it's a representation of some of the ideas that this this show is um is sort of toying with a little bit here fair enough um okay so they walk through this captain america exhibit and this is the same exhibit or a evolution of the same exhibit that we saw in Winter Soldier. And Rhodey asks Falcon why he didn't take up the mantle. 
and uh, you know, Falcon just said, "It just what was his response? Just that like he didn't feel worthy or something." And Rhodey says that the the world is a chaotic, broken place right now, and it basically alludes to like we we need you to take up the mantle, but it, it's you know obviously not happening. There's uh we now go to Bucky. This is uh first time we go to Bucky, and this is a flashback where we see him kill you know a half dozen henchmen, and he ends up coming face to face with one innocent student who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And this was like when he was on one of his old, uh, you know, he's being controlled by Hydra and he was on a mission and he ends up killing this young, uh, this young student. And he wakes up from this nightmare in his, his apartment, which is very, I think sparse might be the word. There's really not much in his apartment. He's sleeping on the wooden floor. And there's something I wanted to mention, because if you go back and rewatch Winter Soldier, there's like this interaction between Sam and Steve when they first meet the Winter Soldier. Uh, Sam was running this Veterans Association group, and they they have this bonding moment over this conversation about how soldiers usually find their beds to be too soft when they come back to civilian life, and how they tend to like be more comfortable sleeping on the floor. So I I, I don't know. I thought that was a cool uh, throwback to all that, and honestly. I don't know about you guys, but I wasn't expecting this show to be so much of like a sequel to Winter Soldier. Yeah, even the visual palette, the, the washed out gray, that old school thriller look, uh, it makes it feel like it's very much a cousin or a sibling to Winter Soldier in a lot of ways. I mean, they, they both have similar ambitions, which are these, you know, political thrillers set in Marvel Universe. And I think your catch of Bucky Sleep on the Floor, Peter, I didn't didn't catch that at all. It's a really... <laughs> Good observation, but I will say, um, as good as Sebastian Stan is in this show, and I think he is very good, uh, the image of Bucky waking up in his sparse apartment, big robot arm, has made me giggle just a little bit. <laughs> uh, were you going to say something, Ben? Well, the um, the idea of Bucky laying on the floor, uh, it reminded me a little bit of the Count of Monte Cristo. I don't know if you guys are like super familiar with... I'm I'm actually reading the book, the novel for the first time right now, but uh, and I haven't gotten to this part yet, but I'm very familiar with like the 2002 Jim Caviezel uh, starring adaptation. Uh, and there's a moment where he comes back from, you know, he, he like is, has discovered this treasure and he's, he's super rich now. And like his, uh, I don't know, like valet or whatever walks into his bedroom and realizes that this super rich guy is sleeping on the floor and he's just not, um, because he spent so many years in the, the Chateau d'If, you know, this, this prison and he is not used to this life of luxury. And I feel like that sort mm-hmm. of same, um, same thing sort of applies to Bucky here. Like he has spent so much of his life in the prison of not being able to control his own actions and like, you know, he's just been essentially mind controlled for uh, decades and decades and decades. And like he says, he's like a hundred and something years old here. Um, <laughs> so just the idea of him just like slowly, finally easing into a world that he um, has to like, you know, carve out and, and make a place for himself. Uh, I just thought it was an interesting sort of, um, yeah, illusion there. Yeah, and then we learned that Bucky is seeing a therapist. And the therapist is played by Amy Quinto, who is the neither of you guys would know, but uh, she plays the lieutenant on the show Bosch and she's really good. So I, I assume that this is a a sizable role because she has a sizable role on that show and other 
other stuff too. Um, Bucky's been spending his time making amends for his past sins and is also been ignoring Sam's messages and he has no friends. He trusts no one. Uh, he lies to the therapist about his nightmares and how he's making amends and the process that she wants him to adhere to. He's kind of uh, fudging the rules quite a bit. I, um, you know, what? I, I never read any of the winter soldier comic books and stuff. So I, I never really thought about the psychological effect that this, <laughs> that everything that Bucky went through would have on him and how he would be dealing with it. And I didn't, when they announced the Falcon and Winter Soldier show, I just thought this was going to be this fun buddy cop, you know, Marvel show. And I didn't anticipate, you know, them dealing with this and him having, you know, as he says, going from one fight to another for 90 years and what effect that has on, on a person. Uh, were you guys at all surprised? Jacob, is this something the comic books deal with a little bit? Or Yeah, Bucky being haunted and guilty is very much Bucky's thing. Uh, I, I think yeah. specifically of a of Edward Baker's Winter Soldier run from, I guess, maybe close to a decade ago as the one that stands out as being a really good Bucky comic. But I think this whole scene with the therapist is really good. I mean, I think the him, him and Sam both have really good character scenes. And I love how Carrie Scoglin shoots this. I love how it gets increasingly filmed in these claustrophobic close-ups. It goes from being, you know, medium shots of being like as in Bucky's face as you possibly can. You can see his pores practically. And I, and I love how uh, the scene really stimulates how uncomfortable Bucky is in his own skin and how each room he's in, he just is trapped. And, you know, so, so many Marvel shows, you know, follow, you know, a pretty familiar aesthetic by design that I really enjoyed how this, the filmmaking here really emphasizes how much Bucky needs to get out of this room. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's that scene is five minutes long, which is like a pretty significant chunk of this episode, like for just a therapy scene. And, you know, there are a couple of little flashback moments sort of peppered in there. But I was just surprised that, I mean, this is this is sort of what we have always said that we wanted, like more time with these characters. And they're really digging in in an interesting way. And I also I love the um, the background it, that uh, that Bucky is sort of uh, <laughs> placed up against in this therapist's office because it's just this. Um, you know, he's sitting in this huge chair and there are there's a, a picture on the wall behind him. The entire wall looks like a forest. And it's just this interesting visual of like this guy who is, you know, maybe you could say he's like out of the woods finally of like, you know, mm. the, this uh, past life that he's been in or or also like the idea of like, you know, there, pick a pick a metaphor that you could apply here. You know, can't see the forest through the trees like that kind of thing. Like he th- there are so many um of those that you could you could apply to Bucky's uh, headspace in this moment. I just like the the idea that it's not just a boring old office, just the production design of, of putting the forest there. I thought it was a nice touch. I love that metaphor. That's not something I even thought about. I just thought about when I was a kid, I used to go to this dentist and one of the walls was just like this big gigantic photo of a, you know, the, the, the whole wallpaper was just a gigantic folder, uh, like a uh, photo of like a desert, like a, um, tropical paradise mm. <laughs> just like it always just rubbed me the the wrong way that like you know people are in this chair screaming as they're getting root canals and stuff and there's like you know the wallpaper is just like this hawaii or whatever <laughs> but uh i know i like that metaphor quite a bit um okay uh we do see a list of names of people that he needs to make amends 
four, and I'm not going to go down the whole list. I'm sure you could look online. There's people that have done the research, and there, there's a lot of Marvel Deep Cup references here. Like there's uh, uh, the family of the Red Barbarian. There's Agent Hauser. The one I do want to bring a spotlight to is H. Zemo. And that's Baron Zemo. That's the character played by Daniel Brühl, uh, who was seen in Captain America Civil War. And I think he has a big role in this series. Is that correct, Jacob? Yeah, he's been all over the trailers, all over the marketing. In fact, uh, he was very much positioned to be the lead villain. So the fact that he's not you know, seen or mentioned by name in this episode is very interesting. But Zemo is traditionally a main Captain America villain. So in absence of Captain America, there's his two best friends. So I think we'll be seeing the return of Baron Zemo very soon. How do you think he's going to play into this this show? I had no, I have no idea. After I could have made a guess before the series started, but now that I've seen the this episode where it's going with the flag smashers, with the final moments, with introduce you know a new character. I do not know how Zemo fits into this other than an agent of chaos out for revenge against, you know, everybody who hurt him at this point, namely the American government. So we'll see. I, I, I do wonder if his revenge will be against, you know, Bucky and Sam, or if he's just going to target the symbol that is Captain America for being the guy responsible for his downfall in many ways. Yeah. It's also revealed in the scene that the United States have get, has given Bucky a pardon for all the, all the killing. And all the the espionage, all all the stuff that he's done, which seems like a big thing, but I guess you know the world's changed after this blip. So, Peter, we need as many superheroes as we can. They're all dying yeah. like flies. Yeah, uh, Bucky does have one friend. It's Mister Nakajima. Nakajima, is that how you pronounce it? I, I his name is um. What is his first name? I wrote it down here somewhere. I think it's Yori. Yori. I'll just call him Yori. Uh, he's an old man. He's still grieving over the death of his son. And, uh, we quickly realized that, uh, the death of his son that was killed is the innocent man that Bucky killed in the flashback. The, there's a couple interesting things here. This is something I, I found on Twitter. So this is when it wasn't an observation I had, but the first scene we see of Bucky and Yori is in this alleyway in Brooklyn and Bucky comes to Yori's aid as he's arguing with this guy in this alleyway. And it kind of mirrors that scene in Captain America, the first Avenger where Bucky saves his weak friend, Steve in a similar alleyway and somewhere in Brooklyn. So I, I don't know. I, I thought that was like an interesting parallel <laughs> there. Um, while they're eating at their usual restaurant spot, uh, the old man ends up setting Bucky up on a date with the the server, and Bucky ends up showing up to the date with a bouquet of flowers. Uh, do, do you think like they've had conversations about like him liking her or like I don't know? I guess there's a history here. They keep on coming to this restaurant. What, what actually? What, let me ask the bigger question. What do you think of this relationship between Yuri and Bucky? I really liked it because it's really is the energy is two old men <laughs> hanging yeah. out as somebody who Bucky can actually probably relate to somebody who's had a lot of pain in his life. Who's from, who, you know, was in his prime, you know, years and years ago. And it, it may, it makes perfect sense to me that Bucky's best bud would be an old man who, who, who is also dealing with his own, you know, trauma and his own troubles. 
And I, I, I love him setting Bucky up with a server. You definitely get the impression that even if Bucky's never said anything, this old guy is observant. He's watched Bucky and he's watched that he probably doesn't get a lot of dates and he's old enough to get away with the public embarrassment of trying that kind of thing. So I think it's a really fun dynamic. What about you, Ben? Uh, yeah, I thought it was, you know, uh, harmless and fun. Um, that's not, frankly, the entire Bucky subplot in this episode has not is not my favorite. I was much more interested in the Sam stuff that comes a little bit later on. Um, so I was a little impatient during this stretch, but I think it's a good way, you know, she's asking him questions on their date. And so it's a good way to sort of hide exposition and, and catch people up uh, on the state of, you know, where Bucky is. Um, so it, it works for me more on a, um, I guess on a functional level than on like, a, an entertainment level, if that makes sense. I, I just, I don't know. I just like this relationship between the two and I hope it's something that is larger spanning than just him eventually being forgiven. Like I, I don't know. It's, it's there's some kind of something to that dynamic. I don't know what it is. I can't place my finger on it, but, um, okay. So. At this on this date, they drink beers and play a game of Battleship, and there's this moment, this very quiet, very quick moment that I'm sure most people didn't even give much of notice to. But I wanted to bring up here because I thought it was interesting, because you know, it, you know, this is a Marvel show; they don't need to include a, a small, quiet moment like this in there. And I, I think it means something. Uh, while the his date is away grabbing them beers bucky looks at this cat there's this like lucky cat i think is what they call him it's one of those japanese ceramic figurines that has a mechanical paw that keeps waving back and forth uh it's like a beckoning gesture and it's usually traditionally a lot of japanese businesses put it at the entrance of their businesses and bucky looks down at it and momentarily stops the paw from rocking, but it keeps, you know, after he s- stops it, it just keeps on going anyways. And I was thinking to myself, like, you know, why is this moment here? It's, it's more than just a co- comedic beat. And it occurred to me, a couple things occurred to me. Number one, Bucky is also left-handed like the cat. Uh, and also, you know, Bucky was created for a specific purpose, just like the cat. And like he said, he went from one fight to another for 90 years and now he wants to stop. And there's this cat that, you know, can't stop, just keeps on going. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I think, uh, what did you, do you guys, did that moment with the cat even register to you guys? I'm, I'm curious. I read his comedic beat at first, but I think it's a really, I think the show in, invites these kind of questions more so than WandaVision did Mephisto, unless the yeah. cat is Mephisto in this scene. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think the, the, I think between Bucky sleeping on the floor and you're reading here, there's just enough richness that, yeah, I mean, I, I love that there's a Marvel show that shows enough detail for us to even have these thematic conversations where it's not just perfunctory. Yeah. Okay, so when the subject of Yori comes up uh, in his dead son, uh, Bucky rushes off. And he shows up at Yori's place and we see the shrine to his dead son in the background and Bucky quickly, you know, leaves and he finds himself unable to cross Yori's name off his list. And I'm guessing this is going to become a big thing this season. He's eventually going to be able to cross that name off the list. But uh, why not? Let's get to the, the part that Ben is interested in. 
Let's get to uh, Louisiana, where Sam is reunited with his sister and nephew. Uh, they are hard up after five years. He and uh, with, with uh, Sam and many, you know, half the world gone. Uh, you know, they have come into financial straits. I, I I get the impression that they weren't like well off before then, anyways. But you know, without the help, they have kind of uh, things are desperate. And uh, despite his star status as an Avenger, he's unable to get them a bank loan. And I I think this is probably the best scene of this of this episode. It, it's a great sequence for many reasons. Uh, first of all, you know, before we get to the serious stuff, I've always been curious, like who play, who pays superheroes. I love that Marvel like had that question come up like on, (laughs) you know, like who pays, I mean, obviously Stark provided, you know, Avengers tower and stuff like that, but like, you know, how do these superheroes get paid? Like, have you guys ever thought about that? I have. And and Marvel actually has an answer at one point, Peter, uh, which is that at one point it's established that the Avengers get paid $1,000 a week by a, a trust fund set up by Tony Stark. Uh, and that's why Spider-Man was so desperate to become an Avenger at one point because he needed the money to survive. <laughs> I like that. I wonder I wonder if that's ever going to come into play in the in, in the MCU. Because, yeah, uh, they're doing all this work, saving our lives. Jacob, they should they should get at least get a thousand dollars a week. Yeah, it's not in the uh, Vision comic series from a few years ago. The really good one that won a bunch of awards. That's about Vision creating his own robotic family living in the suburbs of Virginia. Uh, it's mentioned that he works as an advisor to the White House, uh, where he is showing up to essentially advise on superhero matters. But it's an unpaid position, and his family is struggling. And it's an ongoing subplot about how can can Vision actually lock down paid work in DC or is he going to have to going to have to like find another way to make money so I, I love that the MCU has actually finally addressed the idea of superheroism is a thankless task for people who are doing it not for the money because holy crap could they use that money yeah and speaking to what you were talking about earlier I, I think that this is a very interesting scene in a Marvel show that's clearly going to be about delving into the struggle of a black hero in the the cinematic universe of of marvel and you know to add insult to injury when the bank teller denies them the loan and still asks for a selfie afterwards yeah i talked to this is my malcolm spellman interview you can hear him say himself um after this podcast but i mean it's 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 just a long running thing of of black people in positions of authority whether it be sports figures or politicians you know being celebrated in one way and then just being but also just being subject to the same rules that apply to other black americans and you know you can write entire books about the history of black families being denied bank loans and it being you know put on the put straight up here here's an avenger here's a celebrity a guy who walks the room and people light up and want selfies but he still can't get that bank loan and that is an incredibly real slap to the face i think anthony mackie really underplays it here and rightfully and it's a really good performance choice because it's not played like it's an outrage thing it's played as sam's been here you know so many times and, it's, and maybe not deny bank loans exactly like this but he's been in situations where the microaggressions you know have piled up from a, from, from from a smiling face across a desk and it's played with with uh such such familiarity such disappointment such here we are again uh ben 
I think this is a key scene of the episode. Do you agree? Oh yeah, fully. And I mean, this is the, it, it's not only that Anthony Mackie's Sam has been there, but his sister, uh, Sarah, who's played by, what is the actress's name? Uh, Adapero Oduye, I think is how you pronounce it. Um, she is, is great in the show so far. And I love seeing that family dynamic, but like the sort of, um, like almost defeatist slash realistic perspective that she has versus, uh, you know, pitted against Sam's like sort of idealism, I think is really interesting because Sam has been, you know, in a world where, um, you know, people like Tony Stark have been able to solve problems by throwing money at it and, and uh, you know, superhero teams and all that kind of stuff, but sort of returning to this grounded real world environment and, you know, ruggling, uh, uh, trying to like, revitalize a, a family business um is not something that like superhero powers can really help with so i just thought it was a really really um interesting like human especially human moment in a show that is supposed to be about superheroes and people with metal arms and all that kind of stuff <laughs> and i just thought it was it was a uh yeah uh, hopefully a um a window into the the type of treatment that we're going to see throughout the rest of the series yeah, I'm hoping this isn't just backstory. I'm hoping this delves further into. I mean, judging by your interview, which everybody's going to listen to later, yeah, you really should like... because <laughs> Malcolm Spellman. I was skeptical about a lot of this stuff, and he, unless he, it was overselling himself, overselling the show. He made clear this is what the show is about. The show is about the anxieties you feel right now in 2021, but in the Marvel universe. So I'm really hoping this is just the tip of the iceberg. Okay, I have a little uh, funny nitpick here. So you mean to tell me that this loan officer has not seen an influx of blip people come in looking for loans? He seems like so surprised that this person who wants a loan hasn't worked in five years. Yeah, that was a weird line um, where he's like, I'm not seeing anything for the last five years here. And Sam's (laughs) like, yeah, I've been gone. Like, you know, all these billions of other people. I just thought that might have been a way for the show to really hammer home yeah. To, you know, to play to the the back row of the crowd, like, hey, we're in a post snap world kind of scenario. Um, and it, it did read as like a little a tiny false note within this larger symphony. But um, but yeah, yeah, yeah it, it's it, it's not that much of a nitpick. It just I don't know. It struck me as strange the way it was written. But um, OK, so Sam tries to fix his family's boat himself and is unable to do so. Uh, he can save the world but he can't save his family's business. And uh, we go to Switzerland where Torres attends a flash mob meetup for this group of flag smashers. And uh, he tries to learn some more, but, or make some arrests or whatever he's trying to do. I don't even know what he's trying to do, but does Torres seem incompetent in the scene. He seems really incompetent. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but also he comes face to face with some, Mass terrorists who seem to have superpowers. I don't know. I, I feel like if you are a member of the military or of a secret service organization of some kind in the Marvel universe, you've had over 10 years now to get your act together when it comes to knowing how to confront people in masks. <laughs> I feel like he's acting, he's acting like this is pre battle of New York bullshit mm-hmm. as opposed to somebody who should know what he's doing. Yeah, I think that whole character is supposed to just be like the audience surrogate and (laughs) and it sort of is uh, a weird line to draw when like he's an armed forces officer of some kind. So like theoretically he would have all of this 
you know, all of these skills and training and all of this kind of stuff. But also he's supposed to be like the, oh, gee, I'm in over my head in this situation, just like <laughs> any of you would be if you were to step into this kind of environment kind of thing. So it's like, uh, what exactly are we doing here? What's going on? Here? Yeah. So Sam's like, aren't you supposed to be like just looking at them on the Internet? Like, why are you there? <laughs> um they okay, but I did mention that they like seem to have superpowers. Do they have superpowers? How do they have superpowers? Or is it just that one person who has superpowers? Because it seems like just that one person has like super strength, at least. Um, I don't know, Jacob. What did, what did you think about that? Uh, jury's still out. I have no idea. <laughs> I, I don't think when they're like handing out those masks that the masks, uh, you know, uh, bestow power on anybody, obviously, because oh, no. like he had one. But so I think it was just I think it's just one person that has uh, that's like overly super strengthified or whatever. I mean, because this is related to the Captain America universe, I have to assume that super serum is somehow involved. But I don't know. Uh, I, I guess we'll learn in the upcoming episodes. Uh, but Torres FaceTime Sam and shows him the footage of the altercation and uh, just then on TV, there's a press conference in Washington, D.C. from the Department of Defense. And the announcement is of a new Captain America symbol to inspire and protect. Um, and out comes actor Wyatt Russell, who you might remember from, what, 10 Cloverfield Lane. Uh, what else is he in? Uh, he's an overlord. Overlord. Yeah, he was in that um, FX show. What was that that I didn't watch? Oh, uh, is it Ladder Forty Three? Is that right? Lodge Forty Nine. Lodge Forty. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I'm. I'm Ladder Forty Three is a John Travolta movie from many, many years ago. <laughs> um, yeah, he was in uh, Twenty Two Jump Street. That's probably the the biggest oh, yeah. thing that our our audience would know him from. Cowboys yeah, and yeah. Aliens. How can we forget him playing Little Mickey in Cowboys <laughs> and Aliens? I definitely did. Or Zoo Keith in Twenty Two Jump Street. <laughs> uh, and he is uh, Kurt Russell's son, and, and uh, looks it. He, what he, and looks it he looks just like his father it's wild yeah and he's in the first avenger costume complete with the shield that was i guess it's the same shield that sam donated to the smithsonian which seems like a really big slap in the face to sam sam seems to immediately regret this uh one thing i wanted to point out after seeing this uh, this episode a second time that when he was at the smithsonian there was this government official that came up to sam and um said uh like thanked him for for doing it or something like that and that is the same government official that makes the announcement at, at washington dc so mm. yeah so uh so wyatt plays this character or before we get into this actually ben what did you think of this moment uh wyatt Ruff, wyatt russell has a real real goofy face in that mask that was my big <laughs> takeaway from this he's got this like Aw shucks smile on his face and uh just like the roundness of it and like the you know we haven't seen captain america wear i guess he still wears it in endgame occasionally i'm just so used to seeing chris evans without wearing that that mask and like wearing the costume from the neck down uh that i just want to see wyatt russell is like a, a handsome dude he's got like a, a glorious mane of hair i just want to see his i, I want to see him maskless in that costume but um like you know wrapped up with that little jaw strap and everything i was just like man what a what a goofy image this is <laughs> but i think it was uh done purposefully so. yeah i was gonna say i think that's the point the point is like there this is not right what is going on here what is, who yeah. is this guy and why is he winking at us and why is that not steve rogers uh jacob what did you think 
it's a good moment. It's a good cliffhanger. It really, it's definitely the big insult <laughs> to end the episode after donating that shield in a, in a moment of trying to honor his friend. Here it is being spit back out of him. Somebody thinking at something thing that he thought he could never replace a, a bunch of government goons who said, well, we've replaced you. And it's, I feel like this is going to be the driving, you know, force going forward for Sam. And I'm really curious to see how Ryan Russell's, Ryan, uh, White Russell's character fits into this episode because the character he's playing in the comics, I'll save this for when we're done with our main discussion because it's potential spoilers. Interesting character to say the least. Okay, why don't we just get into the speculation section because there's some there's that and then there's some references in the credit sequence itself, which I think could be considered speculation and spoilers. So uh, if you don't want to listen to it, t- uh, you know, tune out now or you can fast forward. I'll, I'll put the time code of when the interview with the showrunner is in the show notes. But I, I think most of the people here, <laughs> they're here for a spoiler discussion because they, 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 they want to speculate and stuff. So, uh, Jacob, tell us about Wyatt's character. Yeah, he plays John Walker, who has a long history of being an anti-hero and a villain in the Marvel Universe in the comics. He was a replacement Captain America when Captain when Steve Rogers stepped away, and he became a character named U.S. Agent after that, who sort of wears a very similar Captain America costume with some key changes. And essentially, well, he looks like Steve Rogers. He has that, you know, old-fashioned, clean-cut, you know, American, you know, leading man look. He is a much harder-edged uh, person with really broken morals. He fights like Batman in that it's just uh, take no prisoners. He does not pull the punches like Steve does. And he doesn't have Steve's moral compass. He's essentially, um, he's essentially if Captain America broke bad, more or less. And U.S. agent has a long history of, you know, occasionally fighting on the side of good, but more often fighting on the side of gray, of being like the, a guy who you, you don't know if you can trust him. And he's a really interesting character because he represents what a lot of people think America is, which is this sort of all stars and stripes and bluster, but behind the scenes, you know, breaking arms and legs and hurting people and causing more damage than he is saving. So I, John Walker seems to be at least the third villain of the show next to the still unseen Baron Zemo and the Flag Smashers. Yeah. And then the credit sequence has like some imagery that re- has a bunch of references in it. One of them is a reference to the power broker. Uh, do you know who the power broker is, Jacob? Do you have a, the backstory on that? I know it's a, a scientist, like a villainous scientist. And they created like super soldiers, but I don't, I don't know more than that. Um, once again, Peter, my, uh, my Marvel knowledge is slipping <laughs> here. I cannot tell you who the power broker is. I just pulled up his Wikipedia page. so I can tell you next time. I uh, uh, honestly, um, Sorry to put you on the spot. Jimmy. Oh, no, no. I'm happy on the spot. The, the, now the, the listeners will now know that I, my, my Marvel knowledge only goes so far. And it turns out that WandaVision and Falcon Winter Soldier are, are the points where the Marvel Universe has officially spread out wide enough that I have I am now unable <laughs> to tell you much about certain characters. Yeah. Well, I know this character was rumored to appear in the show. I don't know much more than that. I'm sure we'll follow, find out in the, the weeks to come. And another is there's a brief shot of Carl Lumbly, who is believed to be playing Isaiah Bradley in the show. Isaiah Bradley is the from the comics was the first black Captain America. Yeah, this is a storyline that I'm very curious about because uh, there is a long true history of black soldiers, you know, especially during World War II, being used for really ugly experimentation and really horrible mistreatment. 
and the idea that the first Captain America was not Steve Rogers, but a black man who was experimented on uh, is something that really rings true with actual history. I remember when Winter Soldier came out, there were so many people who cried foul about how uh, Operation Paperclip can't be a real thing. Why would America hire Nazis as World War II to bring them to the, bring them to the fold when that actually happened? Like that was Winter Soldier referencing actual events, but like adding fictional characters into it. And I'm curious if this is where this series is going. If it's going to use actual history to feed the backstory of Captain America and the Super Soldier Serum, uh, because it would it would really continue the <laughs> Winter Soldier comparison, and it would and it would continue Sam's story, the idea of you know. One, why should you represent a nation that did this to other black men? But two, the first black cap, first Captain America was also a black man. So I think that's where this is going. Fingers crossed they go for it. Don't, you know, you know, soft shoe it. Yeah. And the whole Bradley storyline, it can be found in this mini series called Truth, Red, White and Black. So if you want to look that up, it, it, you know, there's a lot of people that listen to our podcast, Jacob, that. Don't read the comics. If if anybody wanted, I, I know with WandaVision, we, we pointed people to the Vision comic and we pointed people to House of M. Is there any other comics other than Truth, Red, White, and Black that people might want to look into if they want to, you know, further delve into the inspirations of this the show? Off the top of my head, and I'm sure people listening may have better recommendations than me. Uh, a few years ago, there was a Captain America run where uh, Sam took up the mantle and was Captain America for a good couple of years in the comics. That one, I didn't read all of it, but I read enough of it to know it was good. And I would really recommend Ed Brubaker's Winter Soldier run. It's just called The Winter Soldier. And it's a, it's only less than 20 issues. It's a really good espionage comic starring Bucky. And the, this, his scenes in this episode remind me a lot of that comic series. Okay. Very cool. Uh, speculation. I, ben, where do you think this is headed? Oh boy. Um, I mean, I don't really know. I think the, like I said, I would love for that, uh, that soldier character to be, uh, to have some more, something more devious up his sleeve just to, to make things, to mix things up a little bit. Um, it feels like we already have enough villains though. Like in the mix, we have the, the flag, wait, what are they? Flag, flag smasher, smasher. We have this, uh, this new captain America who probably is whatever. And, yeah, I'm curious about that. Is he going to be a villain in this show or is he just going to be sort of a, a mouthpiece? I'm guessing you don't hire somebody like Wyatt Russell and just have him be, you know, sort of a figurehead kind of guy. Um, although he does certainly have like the chiseled jaw, you know, that the whole look down very well. Um, I think he's talented enough that that Marvel knows that they have to use him to his fullest, uh, you know, fullest potential. So I'm, I'm hoping that it ends up with some sort of big confrontation there. Um, but like, what are the what are the uh, sources that are pulling the strings for that? Is there? I, I'm worried a little bit that there's been, um, you know, another infiltration or something. This is like a larger. Uh, I hope the show doesn't. The, the is government smart enough. has now been infiltrated again. Yeah, I, I hope that the show is smart enough. And I, it sounds like from uh, listening to Spellman's interview that the show is not going to go in that direction, um, and it's just going to be. <laughs> The idea of like um, the government just looking for another person to sort of take on this this mantle just to, I don't know, inspire the population and sort of maybe um, redirect some of these uh, simmering tensions in society that uh, we've seen in, in this post blip, post snap sort of scenario um, and and sort of channel uh, optimism through a, a physical <laughs> embodiment Um I hope it's nothing more than that, because if there's, you know, some sort of, yeah, another infiltration or some sort of other government nonsense going on, I'm just going to roll my eyes a little bit. But 
Uh, I don't know, Peter. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. Did you see, I know we had a lot of discussions during the WandaVision show about Hayward and we were all like anticipating like, Ugh. oh no, it's going to be this na- an evil government uh, organization. But it just turned out that he was a dick and he was yeah. uh, overusing his resources for, for not so great things. And I wanted to bring this up because I saw when the finale aired, like at the end of the finale of WandaVision, spoilers for WandaVision, but Hayward gets arrested in those last few minutes of the, the show. And I saw some people online. I saw there's some people being retweeted into my feed that were arguing. What did Hayward do to get arrested? They were like defending Hayward. Come on. Yes. <laughs> They're like, he didn't kill anybody. He didn't. You know, he only aimed a gun at children and pulled the trigger, but. <laughs> uh, Jacob, do you have any uh, further speculation of where, where the show is headed? I can't see it. Or uh, where you want it to go. I'm not so sure because, like I said, they, they've emphasized this is a six hour long movie for better or worse. And at this point, the pieces still be maneuvered together. And at the end of most TV pilots or TV first episodes, um, the pieces are in play for you to know what the show is about and where it's going, and there's a hook. And here the hook is, it's Marvel, watch it, as opposed to, you know, uh, making it more clear about what the show wants to say going forward about its plot and where this action is heading. I mean, I imagine there will be a Falcon and a Winter Soldier teaming up and fighting at least three bad guys. That's, that's <laughs> at least three, if not more. Fiction, Peter. <laughs> Okay. Well, I, I think this show is interesting enough that we'll probably be doing weekly episodes of it. I'm not going to commit to this now, but uh, we'll we'll definitely do more. We'll so look out for those probably every Friday. Um, and uh, we we do have your interview with the showrunner. Do you want to tee this up? Yeah, I'll tee it up. This was recorded over Zoom using my phone recorder. The audio quality not the best, but you should hear us both just fine. It's about ten minutes long, and this is the interview that I did where I went from being like. This show is good. I'm looking forward to watching it being, oh, is this what this show is about? Okay, let's go. So I hope you listen to this and enjoy it as much as I did participating in it. Yeah. And actually, we should give some backstory of who's in, you know, I usually do that with these shows. Uh, The the showrunner, actually, Marvel doesn't call them showrunners, but, uh, you know, he's pretty much being the showrunner. What, what, What has he done before? Falcon and Winter Soldier. I know he was involved with Empire. Yeah, he was a writer on Empire, writer-producer. And he was interesting because for so many years, I have heard his name bandied about as being like one of those great writers who's in, whose work doesn't often get made. And he's attached to a lot of things where that don't come together. And I know that he has uh, Empire. He has a movie called Our Family Wedding. And he uh, produced a... Um, the name of hip hop uncovered a uh, really well liked uh, Hulu documentary series. So this feels like a long time coming for a guy who's had so much respect in the industry, but not as many credits as you would hope he would. He his name also came up around the time of a Confederate, the fav, uh, sort of infamous show that um, Benioff uh, and Weiss, the showrunners of Game of Thrones, were going to make afterward. That sort of like alternate reality show where the South won the Civil War, and Malcolm Spellman and his wife were going to be sort of co-writers or, or co-producers of that show but obviously that project never ended up happening yeah that's where i first became aware of him because i saw i follow a lot of screenwriters on twitter and a lot of them said oh my god michael spellman he's great and that was and that even though that show fell apart very fast for a number of reasons i i'll never forget the lot, a lot of writers like giving the show the benefit of the doubt because he was involved 
It doesn't seem like he gets involved in many things unless he, you know, has a strong belief behind them. So it, like, it seems, I don't know. I'm excited to see what this, this season is. This, do you, do you think, I know it's probably way too early to tell, but do you think this is a one and done mini series or do you think this is being set up so they can have additional series? I, I know, I think I speculated in the past that they could end up doing Captain America and the winter soldier as like the sequel series. To this. Yeah. I, my guess is that we'll never see season twos of these Marvel shows, but we will see follow-ups with different titles. And I think that's probably what will happen here if it happens. Okay. So here we're going to run the interview with showrunner Malcolm, Malcolm Spellman. Right, uh, hey, hi, nice to talk to you. Uh, the first episode is terrific. Uh, I'm, I hope you're proud of it because I, I really enjoyed watching it. Um, so I guess my first question is, you were, you're with these characters, these two title characters, you presented almost a gift. Two characters who audiences already love, but who've been supporting characters, haven't been fleshed out. So you have characters who are ready to learn about, and there's a lot of questions for you, for you as a writer to start answering. So what were the big questions you walked into the show asking and prepared to answer about you know Falcon and Winter Soldier? I, what I loved about it is all the stuff we wanted to tackle to the characters was apparent and boxed up and ready to unpack, meaning this. We know Bucky has done awful stuff for the last 80, 85 years, right? And we know that he has been manipulated and hasn't been in his right mind. And we know that he's never really had a second to breathe or become an actual human being. The audience knows that also, right? On top of that, Bucky is 106 years old and has never been present in one era long enough to be of that moment. So the out of placeness for him is extraordinary. And again, the audience knows all that. So for us, what we wanted to tackle with him was obvious and it, 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 it allowed everybody to deal with character issues in a very human way with a shorthand that the audience is gonna have. Same thing with Sam. The reason I came to this project was the idea of a black man confronting that shield and that stars and stripes, right? And the ambivalent feelings I would have about it, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Obviously Sam would, and Matt, that wasn't lost on Mackie or Nate Moore, who was our Marvel exec. And we knew we wanted, when we dove deep into Sam, we wanted to position him in a way that felt relevant to today to today so that that journey about whether he says yes or you've seen the uh the uh, pilot or mm -hmm. no you know what i'm saying yeah. uh uh creates great emotion and creates a, a struggle and a story that people in the real world could be like man i get that and that's compelling yeah, I, I read some of the uh, recent-ish comics where Sam takes up the Captain America mantle, and it, it struck me as powerful, the, the idea of him having all the, the, the power to do this job, but society itself having programmed him with, with doubt, and that was something that I think registers in this episode really well. And we dig deeper and deeper and deeper into that, and when you see how it confronts him, and the answer is not the obvious answer, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I hope it's gonna be very satisfying because yeah, it, it, it's you can't be honest in your storytelling and just have Sam pick up after Endgame and take off and fight battles, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. that, that would be disrespectful to him, that would be disrespectful to, uh, uh, to our culture, 
and it would be bad storytelling. So yeah, we we that doubt is what fuels Sam's journey, and that doubt is rooted in in real stuff. Yeah, and there's a scene in the episode. I don't want to go too deep in the details if people haven't seen the episode yet when they when they read this, uh, but where we see it, Sam is treated as a, as a hero in one moment, then by the same person is disrespected on, in a in a really microaggressive way. And I'm, I, I keep on thinking of athletes who are celebrated but then told to shut up. Is, is that what you're going for in, in those scenes? Yeah, I think it's even more common than that, but that's the con- but, uh, several people have made that exact com- comparison. Mm-hmm. I do think you can see everyone from Skippy Gates to Barack Obama to every one of us who's black in day-to-day life have those experiences. Mm-hmm. And when you think about the fact that senators and judges, um, um, no matter how powerful or how, or athletes, how, no matter how famous they are, have this basic common confrontation that's based on identity and race, you know, we just, we, we knew it was gonna resonate. And again, how, how could you ever write the Sam character going to get alone without dealing with the reality of what happens when black people try and get loans. Yeah, I mean, it's... Look, I, I'm not going to sit here and, and be like, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, the whitest white person in the world, and I, I'm trying to do my best. And I, I think it's incredibly responsible uh, and, and and exciting to see a, a Marvel show tackle this head-on. I mean, um, was that part of the initial pitch? Did you come on and say, this is what I have to do right now? And like, were, were there any speed bumps along the way, or is this always packaged in there no matter what? The, the, I mean this. I, I Marvel knows what they're doing, and from the moment from when I first walked through the door, I knew I, that was stuff I wanted to deal with with this character. That's why I was excited. That's why I was passionate. And at no point was there any shying away from it. Because again, if you look at Black Panther, and sometimes I'm saying again because I can't remember if I just said this to you or the <laughs> yeah. last guy before it. If you look at that Black Panther, Marvel's fans all over this planet are comfortable having these conversations. If you keep it fun and entertaining, you can also keep it honest and relevant. Yeah. And uh, 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 Black Panther proved that. Yeah. And the episode and is- by the way, so did Captain Marvel. Like, I mean, it just, you know, it, yeah. And this episode, the first episode, the one I've seen is, is full of wonderful little details. They even, they, they keep it, they keep like nerds like me just like looking at this world and, and excited about what's going on. All those little questions like, do Avengers get paid? What's it like to come back after five years of being vanished away by Thanos? Uh, it's a lot of really fun world building in detail. Uh, like, how did you work that in, into the, in, into the script and into the world? What, what were those conversations like when you first said, okay, what's the world actually look like after Endgame? It, it was so we knew this. We the world. If you think about three and a half billion people disappearing for five years and then coming back, you have a global problem that everyone has to deal with. And we knew we, that we wanted that to mirror what's happening today in our world, right? That creates a commonality. The bank scene, a lot of people are responding to that and just that logic. And it's interesting because that conversation, the way Marvel works, there's a collective of creative people up there, right? And so, uh, uh, at times, you're dealing with people who have worked on every Marvel movie on one specific scene. And that bank scene and the groundedness of how here functions, that went all the way up to the top, a bunch of voices firing. So it, it, was, a, it was a surprisingly uh, intense uh, back and forth with a lot of people about what details matter to them and how we, and how we uh, uh, quantify it. 
on top of that, you know, the the more uh, socio-political issues, not so, more social issues of a black men getting along. So yeah, no, it's funny. That was a that was a lively debate. Uh, speaking of, uh, I'll, I'll go into the social political thing again. Like I feel like you take uh, he's only hinted at in the first episode, which we've seen. But Flag Smasher certainly seems like a a villain that some people will be ready to rally around in 2021. Was, was he like always a, a character choice you want to make sure you introduce early and make as paint as a character who you kind of understand why people would want to follow that lead? All the villains in this series, and there's more than one, right, mm-hmm. are dealing with the issues of their times, which is the post-snap world, which is very similar to our post-pand or our pandemic world. And all the villains in this series believe they are heroes. And their argument for why they are heroes is going to be very, very compelling. We did not demonize any of them. And we wanted, you're going to be rooting for some of these uh, villains in this uh, series because of what's motivating them. Yeah, I think it's, it, w- it would be irresponsible to discuss the idea of someone putting on the Captain America costume without talking about what that actually means to people around the world. That, that's exactly right. That's what this whole journey is about. And part of what this series is about is as Marvel moves into this next phase, we wanted heroes that felt like they are of the times. You know what I'm saying? Like we wanted we didn't want heroes that felt like they could be fighting, uh, uh, fighting crime, you know, 20, 30 years ago with the DNA, how they walk, how they talk, what they believe and what they've been through needed to resonate with young people and old people alike of the 2020s moving forward with, you know what I'm saying? So yeah, we, 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 it had to happen. Like it's about the next phase. I think you just got to tap. All right. They're kicking me out of here, but thank you so much for your time. All right. Later, Jacob. (laughs) You too. And that does it for today's episode of Slash Film Daily. You can follow all of us at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. And please, if you like this podcast, head on over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and write us a quick review. You know, it could be a sentence or two. Uh, don't just rate it. Actually write something. It helps us. It helps so many people find this podcast, and we appreciate everybody who does so. Uh, tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you on Monday.